Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, the president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored to do and delighted to welcome each of you to today's second series of uh, teleconferences on F1 issues. We have with us for today's panel, Aaron Finkelstein, who has been with the Murthy Law Firm for over 15 years and is our managing attorney as well very familiar with many kinds of complex U.S. immigration law issues, including F-1 issues. We also have on the panel Anna Stepanova, uh, who was previously in her former life, as we joke, a designated school official, also known as the international student advisor at a major Midwestern university in the United States. So you have a very powerful and awesome panel that's going to help you, guide you, and give you some tips and ideas on how we can continue to help you and guide you. So as you know, the first teleconference which had aired back in October of 2014, we had shared with you in that con teleconference a broad overview of immigration regulations and policy guidance, which governs F-1 non-immigrant status. We discussed general F-1 rules that govern daily aspects of a student's life, including academic study, class enrollment, employment, travel, financial issues, um, being able to show that you're financially able to pay the tuition and all of the expenses, and practical training, among other issues. In today's, which is the second of the series, we will focus on requirements to maintain your F-1 status, including the CPT, the Curricular Practical Training, as well as exceptions to the full-time enrollment requirement distant learning limitations, and special circumstances which require authorization from your international student advisor or DSO or the USCIS. We will also share with you some common examples of situations where we at the Murthy Law Firm have encountered examples of cases in our practice representing students just like each of you before the USCIS. We also hope to share with you some helpful advice on how to avoid problems before they arise and therefore you can protect yourself and minimize any negative consequence or problems in your life. And then in the last or the third of our series, which we hope to have in a couple of months, hopefully by May of this year, 2015, we will uh, discuss with you issues pertaining to common concerns and issues, uh, what happens at the end of your program of study for OPT or optional practical training, et cetera. So let's get started right now. So Aaron, if I can start with you, why is it so important to understand the F1 rules? Well, thank you, Sheila. You know, immigration regulations, policy guidance that govern F1 students is very complex, and it can be very confusing to a lot of people. 
Prospective and current students have to understand these rules so they can comply with the complex nature of the rules in order to come to the U.S. and to be able to maintain their F-1 status course of study and also to be in a good place to be able to transition uh, from that status to a different status at some further point in time if they so choose. These rules that govern most daily aspects of one's life as a student, they include academic study, class enrollment, employment, travel, financial ability, practical training, just to name a few among many, many, many other rules that are there. While one may be required to learn many of the intricacies of a rule that affects the person's status at any given moment, it may be the benef- beneficial for all students coming to the U.S. in stu- F1 student status to have a good understanding of the basics so they can recognize and address problems as they come up and be able to deal with them so they can move forward with their process, with their ability to get their degrees and maintain status. These problems can result, if not dealt with, they can result in a failure to maintain status, an inability to change to another non-immigrant status, uh, problems with re-entering the United States after international travel, inability to obtain a new visa, or status as a lawful permanent resident later down the road. Okay. God, that sounds like a real big, broad plethora of why people need to understand and participate and listen carefully to today's um, discussion amongst the three of us. So let's dive right into it, Anna, if we can. What role do the designated school officials, DSOs, or international student advisors play in all of this? Yes, Sheila. As as Aaron just mentioned, there are so many different problems, and a lot of students rely on their designated school officials, DSOs, for good reason when they are facing the uh, m- you know the many problems that uh, they may anticipate during their study. Uh, and as, as Sheila, you already mentioned that I used to work as a designated school official. So in my role, I was responsible for uh, generally administering the F1 program on the campus of my school. And I was licensed or certified by uh, SVP, which is part of Student and Exchange Visitor Program, which is part of ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which in turn is responsible for the electronic system known as CVIS. So DSOs can have full access, and they are the only ones who have full access to CVIS when they make notations and when they issue I-20s for the students on their campus, which is really a very major role that they play. They are supposed to understand in their role all of the F1 status maintenance requirements and instruct students accordingly. But that is unfortunately not always the case. Some DSOs, because of the complexity of the tasks and roles that they have to uh, deal with, they just don't understand all of them. And that's why it's also very important for F1 students to know themselves, the regulations, the rules, the uh, very many possible scenarios that can lead to or result in a major, major issue down the road. And it's very easy to rely on the DSO advice when you are a student, and you have to do that to some extent, but you also have to commit to memory a lot of the rules because ultimately 
it is the student's own responsibility to maintain status, even if they acted on the advice of the ADSO. And USCS knows that. So when there is a problem, they say, well, you signed that document and you did that, not your DSO. So you have to pay close attention to all of the documents you're given and documents you're signing even though the DSO may be telling you you need to sign it. Yes, that may be true. And in 95% of the cases, that will be true. But you still have to understand what you're doing. Very good, Anna. And, you know, the sad part, like you noted and, and kind of suggested as well, is that because many of these students are so new into the in the United States, they don't know all the rules because even the DSOs who do this supposedly full time or most of the time get mixed up and confused and give wrong advice and information. Um, and maybe maybe you're saying 95 percent, maybe the top good schools like the one you worked in might have had very knowledgeable DSOs. But we've seen small colleges and neighborhood schools and small universities often make mistakes, unfortunately, and destroy a person's life life and career in the United States, and that has severe consequences. I guess the stu for students who are listening today, they're probably listening because they've already been burnt and suffered, and so their attitude is, okay, tell me something I can jump in. This is great. Ultimately, it's my responsibility. I know that's why I'm listening to this conference. I'm willing to study. I'm willing to do research, but the government doesn't help me because CVIS says go to your DSO, and DSO makes mistakes. So let me, I, I hear what you're saying, Anna, and I appreciate that, but Aaron, can we jump to you? Because we know that students can suffer severe consequences for not abiding by the F1 regulations, can you just go over, over very, very broadly, just a very basic requirement, what is required for maintenance of F1 status for a student during the program of study? So it's very important to understand that there are general requirements as well as exceptions to them. Uh, very generally, the student should comply with the requirements for student employment, such as CPT, maintain a full course of study, not take too many online classes, and not engage in unauthorized employment. Uh, those would be, I think, the big, the big ticket items that you should be aware of and take care of. Okay, thank you, Aaron. And with respect to the curricular practical training or CPT compliance, what is required, Anna? Well, curricular practical training is one of many forms of employment, but unfortunately, this is the one that causes a lot of the issues because it's very easy to do it improperly. It does not require any USCS approval. That's very deceiving because the, the DSO can approve it on his or her own, doesn't require any filings, and it seems like it's very easy, but uh, the rules are somewhat complicated. So as you know, curricular practical training, CPT, is for students who are still pursuing their course of study. It's not to be confused with optional practical training, which we will be discussing in May. One of the core requirements for CPT is that the training be an integral part of the established curriculum. The integral part is a term of art. It's used in the regulation. But what does it mean? Well, generally, that, uh, that means that the training would uh, meet this requirement if the student registers CPT for academic credit or it is required by the program of study. Very recently, just maybe two or three weeks ago, at this point I think more like three, three weeks ago, on January 29th this year, SCVP, Student and Exchange Visitor Program, 
broadcasted a message to all of the DSOs, all of the schools that have access to CVIS. And they said that there should be a formal agreement between the school and the employer, which is termed by the regulations as the co-op agreement. This is a very novel interpretation of the regulation, which means that now all of the types of CPT would have to be supported by the co-op agreement. This is a new uh, this is a new interpretation, as I said. So you need to speak with the uh, with your DSO if you don't have the co-op agreement, which means that there may be a problem later. Uh, number two, um, generally you need to be enrolled full-time for a full academic year before you become eligible for CPT. There are two very important exceptions to this requirement. First, your program of study may require hands-on practical training during the first year. If this is the case, then CPT authorization within the first year would be proper. But unfortunately, there are very few programs that actually do require such training. One of the most common examples is a program in business administration, which normally requires hands-on training within the first year. In that case, you can do CPT and that would be proper. And secondly, when you transfer from one program to another, or if you do a period of optional practical training and then you decide to continue study and enroll in a new program, that new program may not be new in, in the sense that you have already accumulated some time during the previous uh, program and uh, therefore that time would count towards meeting the one-year requirement. And not everybody is aware of that fact, but that may be very helpful to you if you are going on and if you are getting your subsequent degree. And again, as I said, does not require USCS approval, so the DSO simply notes the approval in CVIS, in your record in CVIS, and then issues Form I-20 with the CPT authorization, which you can use to start working on CPT. Okay, very good. Thank you, Anna. I think that's helpful about CPT compliance. Um, now, let's go back to what you just mentioned about the January 29th, 2015, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program broadcast message to all DSOs uh, that there needs to be a formal agreement between the school or the university and the employer, which is termed by the regulations as the cooperative agreement or the co-op agreement, as you called it. So if somebody is already right now in a CPT program and they're doing something with an employer um, and they've presumably been enrolled full-time for a full academic year before that or fit into one of the two exceptions you mentioned, should they now go back to the employer and request the school and the employer to now enter into the co-op agreement after the fact because only they've issued this clear-cut guidance very recently on January 29th of 2015? That would certainly be a good idea, even though it's not clear at this point what the requirements truly are, because SVP on its website still has uh, requirements for CPT authorization that say that you need a co-op agreement or a letter from your employer. So they kind of broadcasted very con contradicting messages at this point. Uh, and hopefully your DSO is very knowledgeable about all of these changes. SVP said that they will be publishing formal interpretations of the regulation in the near future, which will be followed by a 45-day comment period. So we'll see in the near future which 
interpretation will govern. But for now, it's a good idea to get at least a letter from the employer in which the employer would say that they agree to comply with the CPT rules. Well, that I, I wouldn't do if I was the employer's attorney. I wouldn't agree to them doing that because the rules keep changing. That would scare me and scare the company into agreeing to do something that might, you know, subject them to a lawsuit. But certainly, the employer's letter saying that you know we have some kind of an agreement or arrangement with, with the school. university to take their students on curricular practical training, something that would protect them to some extent, protect you as the student to some extent, and hopefully not result in somebody falling out of. Status, but as you can see, all of this is so hot off the press, and so um, and there's so little guidance on so many of these issues. Let's go to something on which we do have a little more clarity and guidance. Aaron, if I can jump back to you, what exactly is the meaning of a full course of study for both undergraduate and graduate students maintaining F1 status? So, a full course of study translates into 12 credit hours per semester for an undergraduate program, undergraduate student and nine credit hours per semester for graduate students. However, there may be some variations, especially if you're doing with a school that doesn't use traditional semester schedules, so you really need to check with your school. Usually, if the school charges full tuition for the study, it's usually full-time study. So if they're charging full tuition, it's full-time study. And as long as the student is enrolled in a full course of, of, of course load. Uh, there are some exceptions. For example, if a student has illness or medical condition, difficulty with the English language uh, or the method of instructions, or perhaps they're coming to the end and they just need fewer classes that are needed to graduate in the last term. All of these situations require authorization from the DSO. Most often, students have to take fewer classes than they would need to maintain a full course of study in their last semesters. Some may assume that because it is such a common situation, they don't need to do anything about it, and that their academic advisor's assurance that they're on the right track to graduate is sufficient. Unfortunately, this is not the case, as this would also require the DSO's authorization. The best rule of thumb is, if you have any doubt, if you're not sure, remember, nobody's going to care about your case as much as you do. Nobody's going to care about your status as much as you do. Ask questions, verify, double check, make sure you're feeling like you've got what you need to be able to go on. Thank you so much, Aaron. That sounds pretty uh, wise, sage, sensible advice. The end of the day, Anna said it, Aaron's saying it, I'm going to repeat it, which is, as a student, you want to make sure that you understand enough of the rules to at least ask the right questions, look for the answers, so that you are not caught unaware and creating problems, because in the end, you're the one, you and your family will suffer the most with any mistake or falling out of status, etc. So the next topic we're going to touch upon is something called distance learning, online classes, etc., because this has become, as many of you know, a topic of a hot topic issue. Some of the schools or universities that were shut down, like the Tri-Valley University, TVU, or University of Northern Virginia, UNVA, etc., had issues where the universities were allowing and offering students distance learning or online classes way more than the statute of the regulations actually allows. So what does it allow? What does the law actually allow? The law says there should be no more than one class of three credit hours of online or distance learning in each semester. So this is obviously at this time a very popular method of learning, but F1 students need to be very careful about taking online classes even if their academic advisor recommends it. 
of course, in this technologically advanced world with the internet and computers and smartphones being the order of the day, online education can take many forms, including online classwork, which can be completed at times convenient to the student, simultaneously or simulcast courses, which are simultaneously offered on many campuses at the same time online which offer a virtual classroom experience, which are where the classes are held at a specific location with the instructor maybe appearing via Skype or some such method. These also have restrictions. So short of the both the student and the teacher or the instructor, both being present during a scheduled class in the same physical space or physical location, the USCIS, does not normally accept any other arrangements as meeting the physical presence requirement. The government's logic is clear, namely that if the student is not required to meet with the teacher or the instructor at a school facility on a regular basis, then this defies the purpose of the F-1 visa classification which would require you to enter the United States and stay in the United States to study because if it's truly online, I guess presumably you could do it from India or any other part of the world online. Why do you need to come here? You need to come here because you're physically attending a class, meeting with students, interacting with the teacher on a live basis in a physical classroom. But the exception is if you're taking extra credits of online education, where you would have maintained full-time student enrollment, as Aaron just pointed out, with the nine for graduate student, nine credits and 12 credits for undergrad, with only one, three credits online, and during school breaks, like summer vacations, then the student is exempt from the full-time enrollment. Um, and I mean, we can give an, an, an example or two of this depending on time. I see we're about 20 minutes into our discussion and we try to wrap up in about 30 minutes. So you know what? If you have time, we'll come back to an example or two later. Let's just try to wrap this up. What is unauthorized, no unauthorized employment that's permitted during uh, by a student on F1 status? Aaron, can I come back to you so we can have Anna do the other part? Sure. F1 students do not need authorization for on-campus employment as long as it doesn't exceed 20 hours per week when the school's in session and they're allowed to do it full-time during regular school breaks. Everything else, such as CPT, OPT, etc., require authorization either from the DSO or from the USCIS in the form of an EAD or work authorization card. Okay, thank you. Um, Anna, what are the most common indicators of a student having violated F1 status? Namely, when does it get on the government's radar screen and what can the student do? Yes, exactly right, Sheila. When does it get on the government's radar screen? So that's how they understand that there may be violations when they see uh, a specific fact pattern, a specific, specific scenario. And we've seen it a lot here, so we can probably talk in terms of having trends and um, giving you a nice description of what those scenarios are. Most common violations of F1 status result from the student's lack of knowledge of immigration law. So it's understandable that they would probably get kind of entangled with uh, some of the uh, violations that we talked about 
so far. And USCIS often looks for specific indicators. So what is the most common in this, uh, in this scenario? Well, authorization for curricular practical training by the school in the first year, we talked about it. So that would be an indicator that there was a violation with regard to CPT authorization. And this actually happens pretty, pretty often. And you always need to look to see if your program of study requires immediate participation, if you changed programs, if you transferred to a different program, and there was no break between the last and the current programs. So those two exceptions, which uh, we already mentioned today, would be okay, uh, which means that you will still be eligible for CPT in the first year. All of the other scenarios would indicate a problem. Now, even if you have authorization for CPT employment, it's still not a pass because if the CPT employment is not related to the course of study, if it's not related to the program of study, uh, perhaps you could look at the job duties for the CPT position. Does the program of study normally prepare students to work in that CPT field, uh, et cetera? If it's not related, it could, also not be, it could also be considered not authorized CPT and create a problem. That very good point, Aaron. USCIS sometimes asks for the list of job duties just to compare the job and the program of study. And when they see a discrepancy, they say, well, you probably or definitely you violated your status by engaging in CPT that's not related. And also, uh, when CPT is not registered for credit, not required by the program of study, and now more than ever, no formal cooperative agreement exists, that also would indicate a problem. You can also uh, indicate, well, there, there may be an indication of a problem if you fall below a full load of courses and there was no proper authorization. As we mentioned today, when you approach your last semester, it's very possible that you will only have to take one or two more classes, but you also need to get proper authorization from your GSO even in that scenario. And if you did, didn't, that would result most likely in a status violation. Yeah, and another one which is the violation. Oh, sorry, Aaron, if you want to say something, let me finish this and then you can say something, Aaron. So, for example, what we just talked about earlier, taking more than one 3R online credit class per semester unless you fit into one of the two exceptions that we described earlier. Right. And another one might be living and working in a different location from where the school's located. Um, Anna, I had a quick question for you. A lot of these look very... Um, I don't know, picayune from an outsider looking in. How often do you see these come up? I mean, do you really see them come up as issues? Are the U.S. CIS really flagging them? Is this something that they have to be sticklers on to assure their status? We see them pretty often, Aaron. And when a student is located, physically located, somewhere in a remote location from the campus location, or it could be a different state, or it could be even within the same state, but not within the commuting distance, that would indicate that the student does not appear physically for classwork uh, on campus. So by itself, leaving somewhere else may not seem like a problem, but it would indicate that there is something hidden here, which USCS is looking for. And yes, we do see those 
scenarios pretty often, and USCIS say, well, hey, it looks like you have not been going to class. Show us how you commute to class. And that's a pretty standard requirement or yeah, when request. You're, when, you're not, when you're living in a totally different city, obviously that's a big, Correct. huge red flag. So let's try to think of how we can plan and think ahead. Um, you know, the big goal, of course, is... Um, all of the examples that Anna and Aaron just described with you on how students can end up violating their status either intentionally or sometimes unintentionally. There's so many other examples and there are more cases than we can actually outline or describe. Um, one thing that we all, I'm sure, agree with is that international students make a significant contribution to the U.S. economy and the leadership, global leadership of America in the in the world as being a technological and center for advanced learning in the world. And each person that comes from every country around the world is adding to that culture and enriching uh, both America and their home countries. But we all need to be clear that in the environment we have in a post-September 11th world, students are being scrutinized more than ever so that any small minimal violation, whether it's unintentional or intentional, could result in the loss of your F1 student status. Hence, and therefore, the guidance that the three of us, Aaron, Anna, and myself have discussed with you today Obviously, you should try to be aware of what's going on, ask questions, do some research to ensure that you avoid many of these problems or all of these problems so that you can be pristine and maintain your F1 status. Of course, if you're ever faced with a problem, you can certainly contact uh, any of us here at the Murthy Law Firm. And of course, being students, we understand that you're always tight on your budget and funds are always an issue. We do have both on murthy.com and on uscis.gov lots and lots of free and valuable information and resources with our free weekly Murthy Bulletin, our free chat, our free forum, etc., which most of which many of them are being reviewed by our attorneys and not just members of the public contributing on the forum because our attorneys do participate. So what we could recommend on behalf of us is that better to be proactive instead of reactive, better not to have to request F1 reinstatement if you can help it, and when the next session, when we talk about the F1 issues, which we'll discuss in greater detail for the OPT, remember, it's a very small window of opportunity that you have, which is 90 days before you graduate, which is right about now. For many of you, if you're graduating in June, May or June, you need to start thinking about this, which is why I didn't want to wait till May to tell you that, or 60 days after your graduation, which is the window to apply for the F1 optional practical training and the EAD card or the employment authorization document that comes with it. So on behalf of Anna Stepanova, Aaron Finkelstein, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we thank you for making time in your busy lives to listen and participate in today's teleconference series on F1 student issues. Uh, on behalf of all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, we wish you continued success as a student. May you enjoy all of the uh, truly learn, truly true learning opportunities that are made available in this great country and its fantastic educational system and never suffer any of the consequences or the problems that can easily befall you if you're not careful and cautious and don't take charge of yourself. We wish you continued success. Have a great day. All the best.